Welcome to the Live Your Purpose podcast, featuring compelling interviews with big-hearted people in the Oklahoma City metro area who are leading, creating, and innovating on purpose. Get inspired by conversations with passionate difference makers from our local community. I'm your host, Charles Gossett, life purpose coach and founder of Full Integration Coaching. On today's episode, we sit down with Adam Soltani, the executive director of CARE Oklahoma, a civil liberties organization with a mission to enhance understanding of Islam through advocacy and mutual understanding. And now, the Live Your Purpose podcast. Welcome to this edition of the Live Your Purpose podcast. I'm here today with Adam Soltani, the executive director of CARE Oklahoma. CARE is the Council on American Islamic Relations and is a civil liberties group with affiliations nationwide, including Oklahoma. Adam is a graduate from the University of Oklahoma, holding a master's degree in human relations with a certificate in organizational diversity and development. He also holds a Bachelor of Arts in the field of sociology from the University of Central Oklahoma. He has served the Muslim community in various capacities as a professional, including promoting and managing American Muslim artists for a London-based record label, serving as an assistant director for outreach at the Islamic Society of Greater Oklahoma City, coordinating youth development programs at the Islamic Society of Edmond, and being one of the founding members of the Oklahoma Chapter of CARE. Sultani currently serves as the chair of the Oklahoma Conference of Churches Religions United Committee. He is a former member of the Oklahoma Democratic Party Religious Education Committee, the Interfaith Alliance of Oklahoma, the Planning Committee for Oklahoma City's Jewish Muslim Film Institute, and the Islamic Society of Greater Oklahoma City Executive Committee. Adam's written commentary is regularly featured in the Oklahoma Gazette. Tulsa World and Oklahoman, and he has been interviewed by local, national, and international broadcast media. He is a a regular public speaker at Oklahoma universities and college campuses on topics ranging from the basics of Islam to specialized topics such as demystifying jihad. He's the recipient of numerous awards, is an adjunct instructor at at Oklahoma State University, and is a husband and father of two, Zane and Aaron. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here with you today. Yeah, Adam, we've known each other for a few years now, and most memorably, at least in my mind, several occasions, but uh, you visited our church one time and uh, just had this wonderful presentation of your faith and specifically the prayer practices and Mm -hmm. the way that uh, prayer is fostered intentionally as a daily habit and all of the meaning that's wrapped up in the different periods of prayer throughout the day. And this was inspirational to me. I told Mm -hmm. a mutual friend, Imam Imad Nchasi, who's also been a guest on the show, Mm -hmm. about that as well, that experience as well. And uh, so I I reflect back very positively to that, and it impacted my my faith as a practicing Christian and my prayer practices. That's wonderful. You know, I I remember that visit, and, and I remember, you know, vividly, uh, many of the visits to local churches, universities, uh, Jewish temples and synagogues, and, and many other places where I get to share my faith. Because to me, that's the beautiful thing about being in Oklahoma and being in America, is that we have this opportunity that is not provided to everyone around the world today and has not been provided throughout history, where we actually get to share our faith. And not just that, as you so well mentioned, learn from each other and grow together. And people of different faith backgrounds have actually shaped my understanding of religion, of faith, of spirituality, and what it means to be a good Muslim. I tell people all the time, I'm a better Muslim because I have friends who are rabbis. I'm a better Muslim because I have friends who are Christian pastors, right? These people have given me anecdotes and wisdom and even guidance from their traditions that I'm able to apply in my life that allow me to be the best Muslim that I feel I can possibly be on a daily basis. Absolutely. And I resonate with that as well, you know, and I think the more that we can get to know about another faith tradition in in ways that are such um, so conducive to conversations, such as your visit, the dialogue Mm -hmm. that was had, um, it really shapes us. It shapes our, our worldview. And for me, it means that it's more inclusive, even as, as uh, right. different points of view may, may challenge me. 
it's through the conversation right. and through meaningful dialogue that those different viewpoints can be incorporated and understood. So mm, well I really, said. yeah, I really appreciate uh, you being on the show. So Adam, as you may know, we start each episode with a kickoff question and you've chosen yours. So I'll just throw that your way and we'll see where the conversation sure. takes us. All right, Adam. So what are the struggles and triumphs that have most shaped your life? That's a great question. I think the number one struggle that has shaped my life is a struggle to understand my identity. I oftentimes share this story with my students at Oklahoma State University, and I share it whenever I have an opportunity with any audience. I was born in 1983 in Kansas City, Kansas, to a father who had immigrated just a few years prior from Iran before the Islamic Revolution of the late 1970s, early 1980s. My father married a white American Catholic woman. So I was born into this environment that first and foremost was not ready, let alone willing to accept me for who I am. Nowadays, we're starting to have these conversations and we're still not quite where we need to be, but we're definitely a lot better off than we were back in 1983, right? People do have a basic understanding that our identities are not just one singular identity, but we're actually made up of multiple identities. And the ideas of coming from a Muslim Catholic home, right, or a single parent, or I mean, one parent who's an immigrant, another one who isn't, that's not as foreign to people now as it was, you know, 40 years ago or so. So I was born into this environment and being raised by both these parents, I was exposed to both cultures, right? the white American culture of Kansas, right? Kansas City Chiefs, um, you know, the Royals baseball. Uh, we even had an indoor soccer team. That was before, you know, Major League Soccer, you know, but I, I still remember the Kansas City Comets. Um, they were actually an indoor Major League Soccer team type thing, you know, but my culture was shaped by football, by sports, by cookouts, you know, at the lake. Um, but then simultaneously by celebrating Persian New Year and going to Persian weddings and things of that nature. So I was living this dual identity. And additionally, that impacted my understanding of religion. In fact, people ask me all the time because I was not raised in religion. In fact, I embraced Islam at the age of 17. So I've been Muslim for 21 years. And they say, what was it that, you know, made you gravitate towards religion? Some people may assume it was my father because he was Muslim, but it actually wasn't. It was my mother and what she modeled for me, because honestly, I'm sure my father did. He says he did, you know, that he prayed and, and practiced the faith when I was young. But I don't recall. I don't remember that. But I do remember every night when my mother, before she would sleep, she sit on the edge of her bed and she'd read from a Bible. I still remember what it looked like. It was green. It had this soft, almost fabric type cover, and she had a gold bookmark every single night. She never missed it. And that left an impression upon me. So from a young age, I felt like I had this concept of God. At times, I felt like I had or wanted to have a relationship with God. I remember lying in bed as a young person, just talking to God, not, you know, without any like trying to conceptualize God, but just feeling like God was there present, if you will. So this was a challenge for me, you know, trying to figure out who I am. What is my identity? You know, am I American? Am I Iranian? Am I Catholic? Am I Muslim? Am I something in between? I don't fit into any of those boxes, right? The categories that they want you to check off, white, black, Hispanic, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So when I was finishing sixth grade of elementary school, at that time, sixth grade was still in elementary school in Manhattan, Kansas. My father had finished his PhD from Kansas State University, and he got his first job at Alabama A&M in Huntsville, Alabama. So he moved down there. Big culture shock for me and the entire family, especially my father. My father had flown from Iran into the United States. It's the first time he had left, ever left the country directly to Kansas City International Airport. And his cousin picked him up and drove him to Lawrence, Kansas, right? He was a Jayhawk. And the entire understanding of America and his definition of America came from Lawrence, Kansas, right? So going to Alabama and asking the neighbor, where's the grocery store and hearing, well, I'm fixing to carry myself down to the Kroger's. If y'all want to follow me, come on now. Like, well, what, what kind of world am I living in? Right. Can you translate that for me? Right. Totally different dialect. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so we were there for three years 
Uh, my father had a contract with the university. When that finished, we all decided it wasn't the place for us. And then, so we moved to, well, we had a choice, really. My father got two job offers. One was uh, Langston University here in Oklahoma, Langston, Oklahoma, historically black college, or somewhere in Minnesota. He said Minnesota, and we all said, uh-uh, no, sounds way too cold. And Oklahoma <laughs> was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. <laughs> Oklahoma is cold, too. But, yeah, Minnesota just sounded too cold. Yeah. But uh, Oklahoma was closer to home, closer to Kansas, where my mom was from, where my dad knew where we were born. Me and my brothers, I have two younger brothers. So it made sense, right? So we said Oklahoma. So here we moved to Oklahoma. I started 10th grade of high school, Edmond Santa Fe. And I felt lost, man. I was, I, I didn't know who I was. I felt like I didn't fit in. I felt like I didn't have a, an understanding of, you know, who I was, who I connected with, and even where I landed, because even though Oklahoma borders Kansas, the culture of Oklahoma compared to Kansas is vastly different, right? So I was just like this really confused person. Additionally, it was around the same time I started making some decisions that my parents weren't happy with. And even though they adhered to different religions, they still had expectations of certain, you know, moral values that me and my brothers would, you know, uphold in our lives. So I was making decisions that my parents weren't happy with. I finally got to a point where I had done something that I knew was wrong. My parents found out about it. And I said, you know what, I've got to figure these some things out. I, I, I'm not happy. Um, there's a lot of questions I have about who I am, why I'm here in Oklahoma and on earth, right? Um, I got to figure this stuff out. So I didn't know what to do, right? Religion was not the first thought at the top of my mind. And so I basically retreated from society. Um, I basically did one of two things in my spare time. I played PlayStation games. And for the kids listening, that's PlayStation 1. <laughs> okay. PS1. PS1. That's how old I am, right? Or I, you know, rented movies. There was a Hollywood video. Uh, they don't exist anymore. Right? Even the kids don't, probably the young folks don't get that either. So I think right. Netflix, you actually have to go get the movie from the store. Right. And they were after Blockbuster just by the way too, right? There was Blockbuster right. video. <laughs> That's right. So Hollywood video, renting movies on the weekend, playing video games and just trying to keep my grades up in high school. One day my mother picks me up. The bus didn't run. I used to walk home because we lived too close to the school. So within that mile radius, they wouldn't run the buses. And so my mom picked me up. It was a Friday and she drove in the opposite direction of home. I said, where are we going? She said, we're going to pick up your father. He went to the mosque. He went to Friday prayer. Okay. At that point, I had been in a mosque. Uh, I had some familiarity with it. So growing up, I went to Catholic school, kindergarten through second grade. So I had that, you know, familiarity with Catholicism. Uh, I went to the church with my mom. I actually liked Catholic church. I thought it was pretty cool. You know, I liked all the things that they did. I love the communion. Like, I was like, man, I can't wait to eat that bread, you know, um, that little wafer. And then when I found out they were drinking wine in the cup, I'm like, yo, that's what's up, right? <laughs> I, <need me> <laughs> so, I can't wait till I'm old enough to get a sip of that wine, right? Right. And then, but, but, you know, my mom eventually, she got a little disenchanted with the Catholic church and stopped going. My father, he took us to the mosque um, in, in uh, Alabama to get us kind of introduced to it and understanding, but I didn't really care. The only time I cared to go was I made a few friends over there. And so we'd hang out, play basketball. We actually became really close. We'd go to each other's houses, play video games, whatnot. But religion was not, you know, uh, at the top of my mind. So when my mom said, we're going to the mosque, I said, yeah, whatever, you know, pick up your dad. So we get there, we pull up to the Islamic Society of Edmond. The old building is still there. It's at 525 North University Drive in Edmond, Oklahoma, right across from the university. The old building is still there. Now they built a bigger structure, but the old building is tiny, right? It's not big at all, smaller than probably most of our houses. And I walk in, slip off my shoes and walk into the prayer hall. My father's standing there. My father's not a tall guy. He's like five foot five, I think. He's not tall at all. Towering over him is this white dude with a big blonde beard and he's six foot seven. His name is Soheib Webb. We're good friends till today. He's the first Muslim I ever met in Oklahoma. And he shook my hands. Uh, he had just converted to Islam probably six or seven years prior to me meeting him. He shook my hand and said, come to the Sunday class. There's a class for teens your age. They, you know, have a little class. They learn a few things. 
Um, they go play sports and whatnot. You probably would enjoy it. But yeah, whatever, right? I'm a high school student. I didn't really care. Didn't think much of it. But my father was interested for me. And so Sunday morning rolls around. I forgot about it. And my father woke me up and says, go to the mosque. I was like, yeah, whatever. And got nothing better to do, right? Might as well check it out. So we go. And when we walk in, again, like I said, it's a small structure, right? So you walk in. There's a very small entryway. And then you walk into the prayer hall. There's not really any place to hide from anybody, so to say. And there's about 15 or so, a dozen, a little bit more uh, teenagers sitting in a circle. And there's an individual who I became also my friend uh, named Abed Ishaq. And he was talking to the youth. He was kind of the youth teacher, if you will. My father walked in with me. We sat against the back wall because I didn't want to, I didn't want to get into the circle, right? I didn't feel like I fit in just yet. And people asked me, what was that experience like? What, what, what intrigued you? Because obviously I'm Muslim now, right? What intrigued you at that moment? I said, honestly, I don't remember a darn thing about what was said that day, except Abid, who was, you know, giving the class, he mentioned the names of Tupac and Notorious B.I.G., right? For me as a young person in the mid-1990s or late 1990s, these were people who were at the pinnacle of hip-hop music but also perhaps at the pinnacle of music in general at that time in our country. And it wasn't like he was encouraging us to go listen to their music. Um, it was more along the lines of these are not the examples we should be following, no matter how popular they are. But instead, we should, within our understanding of religion, look at the popularity of the prophets and those who followed the prophets and use those as our examples. Anyways, all I remember was that and when I thought to myself, wow, this person maybe can understand me. I felt this connection that I didn't have with my father or my mother. And I felt like I didn't have with anyone else at that moment. So I went back Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, eventually became part of that circle, started to make some friends. But more importantly, I started to get answers to the questions I was looking for. What's my purpose? Why am I here in, in, on this earth? Why am I, you know, what should I be doing on a daily basis? What happens to me after I die, right? All these things. And I just started to make these connections. Finally, after a couple of months, I approached Abbott and I said, look, I need you to teach me more. I don't know how to pray. Muslims pray five times a day. I don't know how. I don't know how to do this, do that. And I just want to learn. And he took me under his wing for years and he taught me. Everything I know provided me a, a very solid foundation for my understanding of Islamic religion. And not only that, for even who I have become now as a leader within the Muslim community, I really attribute it back to those first few formative years of my religious experience. So when you talk about struggle and triumph, I think that story covers both. It was a huge struggle for me. And that wasn't the end of my struggle, right? 9-11 happened two years after I became Muslim. Boy, that, you know, you think you figure everything out. Talk about throwing a wrench into your plans, right? I, like everything I thought I knew, I no longer knew. And so I gravitated away from faith, uh, not right away. It was probably around the year 2003 or so that I just had another big identity crisis with all the pressure of living in a post 9-11 world with losing many of my close friends who actually one of my close friends during that time did pass away um, from a from a sudden illness but most of them who were my you know friends that i was with almost every day and people that i'd learned from or learned alongside about religion they had had to go back home literally to their countries like pakistan and india because of the changes in immigration law and you know, issues related to visas and the lack of renewal or extensions of visas and things like that. So I had another, you know, bout with that in the a, a few years following 9-11, but really struggle and triumph, you know, the struggle to find my identity and the triumph of overcoming that struggle probably really defines every aspect of my life. And I truly, I'm 38 years old. I don't think I actually solidly figured out who I am as a person and sell probably within the last decade um, because the world has finally, I think, changed in a manner that it makes it 
a little bit easier for people who have these multiple, sometimes conflicting identities to explore and better understand them. And also my relationship with the work I do at the Council on American Islamic Relations and my opportunity to be able to learn from people who have spent their lives in community leadership and have that relationship with faith communities has also greatly influenced my journey. So that's probably the best, you know, example in my life that has really sustained the, the, the vastness of my 38 years on this earth. Um, and I still sometimes struggle with the idea of identity because now I'm raising children right. that are going to go through the same thing. You, you mentioned that. I'm an Iranian American. I married a Palestinian American who was raised by a Moroccan stepfather. My children are inheriting all these multiple identities. Both my wife and I are Muslim, but we have members of our family who are Christian. So we celebrate the Eid holiday, which is the Islamic holiday, but we also celebrate Christmas. My kids don't yet understand that, right? So I feel like very soon I'm going to have to come face to face with this once again. But hopefully, I hope and I pray that I now have the ability to help my children understand their identity in a way that my parents could not because they did not have the experience, the tools, or the resources. Yeah, absolutely. Adam, thank you so much for sharing. Um, the long story version, which I think that is so helpful uh, to our listeners, anyone tuning in you know, and hearing this, they can catch perhaps maybe you're listening to your own narrative, talking to the listeners for a moment. Where, where you can hear a part of your own story, maybe not exactly the same, but maybe you can relate to any part of what uh, Adam has shared through your own lived experience. I know I can. Um, Adam, as you were talking about these teenage years, oh my goodness, you know, let alone your background and your particular challenges and unique circumstances that you were living in, the dynamics that you were uh, a part of. I'm just thinking about being a teenager at all. In any for anybody on the planet, you know, at least for myself, that was not that was you know more painful than not, at least for me. Right. Uh, you know, made a lot of choices about uh, what was right and what was wrong, and I chose a lot of wrong. You know, mm. and, and mm. for me, it was it was uh, out of a lot of uh, hurtness inside. You know, I, I had a lot of trauma, I had a lot of feeling like I didn't belong. So the word belonging was elusive mm. to me. Felt like an outsider a lot. And uh, some of that has to do with my temperament. Some of that has to do with upbringing. Uh, some of that has to do with life experiences and just unique ways of seeing the world. But sure. uh, yeah, but as I heard you, you know, there in the mosque at uh, there in Edmond, you know, and there was this moment or series of moments where, hey, wait a minute, I know those guys, I know P Tupac, I know, you know, mm -hmm. I know that. But then there was a different way of viewing these individuals and not slamming anybody, right. you know, of course not, but. But just a different way of looking at, at uh, what does it mean to be a person in the world? What does it mean to be an influence for good or for positivity mm. and, uh, and, and your own connection there? And I'm just I'm just curious about that point. Not that we have to go in the past all the time, but, you know, um, anything else that you recall just walking about? What was it as you reflect back? Um, I know you mentioned an individual or two that you really connected sure. with and, and the, the, you know, the hip hop artists. What kind of elusive elixir was this, do you think, that, that allowed you to feel some sense of, you know, homecoming or belonging or just okay in your soul? You know, people ask me, like, what really attracted me to Islam? Yeah. And I think it was two things. Number one is that it provided the structure I did not have. Uh -huh. Look, and I tell people, I say, they say, why Islam and not something else? I say, you know what? I honestly don't have an answer for you. I believe that excuse me, I believe that God has a plan for everyone. And I believe it was part of God's plan to lead me to that. Because yeah, it's true. I teach introduction of world religions now. And there are many religions in the world that provide structure and provide guidance and things of that nature. So Islam is not alone in that. But this rigid, rigid structure, if you will, of the five daily prayers, and the rigid structure of the fast during the holy month of Ramadan and the discipline it takes is something I desperately needed because I was being, I mean, that time and still till today, we live in a world where it's probably worse now, especially for young people growing up, where it's like, 
we want it now, right? It's the Burger King way, you know, have it your way. Uh, you don't want to wait for it, especially now with cell phones, the internet. My kids don't have the concept of waiting and being patient for something. Well, I guess they kind of do in some regards, but they'll wait and be patient for the next season of Fortnite to come out, right? But <laughs> but, right. but they don't want to wait. You know, when they want to watch something, it's got to be instantaneous, right? It's got to come yeah. to their devices. If Wi-Fi goes down in my house, oh my gosh, it's like the world has come to an end, right? Relatable. Oh yeah, <laughs> we know. Yeah, right. But but I think that's the thing is that I had no sense of discipline and structure in my life. And I didn't even apply discipline at that point to even like academics or anything. So it provided me with that. And I feel like that helped me a lot and helped me become a better person in many regards. Um, that's number one. Number two, Islam answered the questions I needed. And again, like I said, it could have been something else, but I think God guided me to Islam. And I can't speak for other religions because quite honestly, even though I teach religion, Islam is the only religion I've ever had the actual, if you will, spiritual experience to be a part of that community. But within the Islamic tradition, there is no, um, there is no, what do you say, taboo or discouragement for asking questions and really trying to understand every aspect of the religion and how your life relates to it. I compare that to my upbringing in my early days going to Catholic school as a young person. And again, I'll, I'll preface this by saying, I know not all Catholics are this way. I don't even know if necessarily this is a part of Catholicism, but this was my experience, right? We often define things according to our experiences. I remember we visited the church. I was probably first or second grade. The pastor or the priest, I'm sorry, was giving us the tour of, of the church. And there were pictures of the life of Jesus all around. And I remember I had a question and I don't remember even what the question was, but I had a question and I was told by the priest that I'm not allowed to ask that question. I just have to believe. And that's called faith. Okay, fair. I understand what he's saying now. I get it. But still, as a young person, I was not satisfied with that answer. I don't know if that's something that happens often, but it happened to me. And when I came into touch with Islam, the people I came into touch with that taught me about the religion never responded to me in that way. They always helped me to find the answers. And I feel like the scripture of Islam, the Quran, also provided the answers that I was looking for. And so that's really those two things. Number one, I got the, the, the structure I needed so desperately in my life. And two, I found the answers to what I had been searching for for quite some time. And I, like I said, I believe that those came to me at the time that I needed them to come to me in my life. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for going there. Yeah. So that'll add some clarity for listeners again, but also help our conversation. So just knowing that you've had these pivotal experiences as a, a life purpose coach, and I'm also, mm. a, you know, on the other, on the side, I'm an addiction recovery coach, but in terms mm. of our, our conversation now, the, the concept of purpose and meaning and finding these these deep, uh, almost existential answers that you had been seeking uh, from a young age. Uh, again, that's relatable for me. I think I'm wired that way. I think God created mm. me that way <laughs> to be mm. looking for what is this thing all about, meaning wow. me and my relationship with everything in it. <laughs> you know, so why am mm. I here? So I remember struggling and, and, and really searching for that, grappling with that from a very young age as well. And, mm. you know, I had my, my own experiences and I won't go too far into them because this shows about you, but, <laughs> but that's part of the, the human evolution and the spiritual evolution of each one of us. We have these opportunities to come face right. to face with, in these instances, with religion and with other, for me, with other programs, such as the 12 steps mm. of Alcoholics Anonymous that provided mm. me a way, a, a path that had already been trod by those who came before me. And wow. some, some guardians and some mentors that were able to say, hey, here's what to watch out for. Here's kind of what works. Here's what doesn't. Mm. Do you have any questions? And I'm like, yeah, I've got a lot of questions. And <laughs> so uh, I, I can relate to that as well. Just being able to have the dialogue and not just a monologue, a top-down uh, expectation, right. but really a conversation as a seeker, as someone who's really right. looking for something. And uh, seekers find, you know, when, when they can be a part of a conversation like you're describing. So, right. yeah, well, hey, this conversation can go any direction, Adam, but I want to make sure and, and make time, good use of your time 
And also to talk a little bit more about important topics such as care. I'd love to hear a little mm. bit about uh, your involvement with care and just maybe some general information about it. And then sure. what's super topical right now is uh, the Afghan refugees, which are sure. have been coming uh, slowly to Oklahoma. I'd love to hit those two topics. So whichever seems like would be good use of your remaining time. Well, yeah, I can uh, make the explanation of CARE pretty simple. CARE is a Council on American Islamic Relations. Organization has been in uh, Oklahoma City with an office and, and staff for the last 15 years. I was a founding board member back in 2006. They recruited me because they were looking for somebody who could connect with the young people. And I happened to be pretty active and I was in college. So that's how I ended up being on the board for two years. Always stayed around as a volunteer. And in 2012, I actually didn't have a plan to apply for the position of executive director, but some close friends, uh, trusted friends and family members encouraged me to apply. And thankfully, you know, I was given the opportunity and it's been the opportunity of a lifetime. I've truly enjoyed every moment of it and thankful for this, uh, you know, this, what I see to be a great blessing from God to be able to serve uh, not only the Muslim community, but to serve the people of Oklahoma. So what is CARE all about? I say in a nutshell, it's about improving the life, I'm sorry, improving the quality of life for Muslims in the state of Oklahoma, and by extension, providing the best quality of life for all Oklahomans, regardless, regardless of faith or cultural background. And that's it in a nutshell, right? Whether it's our civil rights work, our government affairs advocacy, our community outreach, you name it, it's all about making life the best it can be for everyone. So, you know, if people are interested without boring the listeners, they can go to care, C-A-I-R-Oklahoma.com. You can read up more there. I think what's more important right now, as you mentioned, is what's going on with the refugees. You know, this is, this is something unique. In our lifetimes, we have not seen a circumstance like this where we leave a country, the United States, that we have been there for the last 20 years. And all of a sudden, the people who helped us and their family members, their safety and security is at risk because a, a certain group of people have taken over the country, right? So in this case, the Taliban retook Afghanistan when the U.S. left and countless number of Afghanis who have been our allies and have been supportive of what the United States was doing while there are in trouble. And so thankfully, you know, the Biden administration, Governor Kevin Stitt and many others have opened the doors and welcomed them. And so that's what we're seeing right now. And Oklahoma's taking the third largest number of Afghan refugees in the nation. And this to me is a beautiful thing. We talk about Oklahoma standard, talk is cheap. We don't always reflect it, right? This is, in my opinion, a true reflection of the Oklahoma standard. Number one, the fact that we're opening the doors and opening our arms to the refugees. But number two, we put a call out for people to provide donations to help them. So we weren't jumping in to get involved because we're not a refugee support organization. That's not our experience. That's not kind of our focus either. But part of our focus is to do a few things. One is to educate people about Islam and Muslims. Number two, to empower the Muslim community in Oklahoma, doesn't matter who it is or where they come from. And number three, to build bridges of understanding. So we felt by helping and working alongside other organizations in regards to welcoming the refugees, we would achieve these parts of our mission. So when Catholic Charities called us and said, this is what's going on, we told them, we didn't jump in and say, we're going to do anything. We said, you guide us. Tell us what can we do? So it just kind of has grown over the last month or two, where initially we started out with this idea that we're going to provide them with this welcome kit, because the first 24 to 48 hours are crucial for refugees arriving into the United States, because everything they touch, they feel, they see, every experience is going to have an impact on them. And I told Catholic refugees, I said, look, we're not here to determine what is going to happen to them five or 10 years down the road. But the moment they get off the plane, we have to show them as Oklahomans of diverse faith and cultural backgrounds, that their faith and their culture is safe here. They need that reassurance. So I come with this idea for welcome kits. The welcome kits provide them with a copy of the Holy Quran, something familiar for them from a spiritual standpoint, a prayer rug and prayer beads, 
both spiritual and um, cultural. Uh, they get the PPE items, which are very practical still because we're still not quite done with the COVID pandemic. And then they get these hygiene kits that provide them with essentials because many of them are coming with only the clothes that they're wearing. So things that we take for granted, toothbrush, toothpaste, deodorant, and so on and so forth, soap, right? They need those things immediately. So our first thing was welcome kits. We put up a fundraiser on Facebook, $5,000. You know, thankfully, within a few hours, the entire amount was raised. Okay, let's get to work. Started getting to work on that. Next thing, Catholic Charities calls us and says, you know, to go with these welcome kits, why don't we provide them with a welcome meal? Because number one, the cuisine, you know, they don't want fried chicken from KFC. You know, they don't want Big Mac from McDonald's, right? <laughs> those right. are those are not typical things you eat in Afghanistan. No. So we have plenty of local Muslim restaurants that serve halal food. So I said, no problem. We'll take care of the money and the food. I incre- I doubled our, our fundraiser goal from five to ten thousand. Again, amazing. Oklahoma came together within a few hours. We reached that second goal. So we got the money for the kits. We got the money for the food. I thought, okay, this is great. This is what we're going to do. Next thing you know, Catholic Charity says, we're just, we are so busy because we're dealing with all the logistics of resettling these people and bringing them in. Can you also take clothing donations and extra hygiene items? So we began to do that. And next thing you know, our office, our Care Oklahoma office is packed. I mean, still to this day, it's packed with so many donated items from so many generous Oklahomans that we've actually run out of space and we've had to ask people to hold off on providing those things. We will hopefully open it back up for donations because there's a lot of people who are still wanting to provide. And as more refugees come in, then more things will go out to help them. And we will indeed start taking more things again. But, you know, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, doing all this extra work as a nonprofit is exhausting, but also there's something special about being able to do this for people. You know, something that you're put in this circumstance and you're given a choice, right? Either you play the role of just like, we're going to stick to our, our mission. We're not going to get too far involved. Or you say, no, this is a unique circumstance that requires we all come together and do something. I'll share with you a story a friend of mine once shared with me. He said, if you're walking down the street and a homeless man comes up to you and asks you for $5, you open your wallet, you have $5, that $5 no longer belongs to you. It belongs to that homeless man. I said, why do you say that, right? It's still in my wallet. Why does it belong to him? My friend said, because the moment that that man came to you, God made it an opportunity for you to provide it to him because you don't need the money, right? You're not desperate for the money that now belongs to him. And that's your opportunity that God has presented to you to provide balance and equilibrium in society. And I thought about that for a long time. I'm like, man, that is deep. That is so deep because if somebody's asking me for something that I have and I don't need, it's no longer mine. Because God gave it to me to test me. God gave it to me to say, this is with you until the person comes and asks for it, right? So I feel the same way about these refugees. God has given us so much. I mean, most of us, of course, you know, you know, there are some people and, and, and of course we do a lot of things to help people. We volunteer the regional food bank. We donate to the regional food bank. We partner with the Homeless Alliance. So indeed we have to help people here at home too. Uh, but there's something about this circumstance that made me think of that story. We live in excess, right? I go home, I got a closet full of uh, body wash and uh, deodorant from Sam's, right? You buy the bulk packs, right? You got the, all the paper towels and toilet paper and toothbrush. We got enough to last us for years sometimes, right? Because we go crazy at Sam's and Costco. And because we have so much money to afford these things. Well, they no longer belong to us because God has given them to us to hold on to them until these individuals in need arrive so we can give it to them. So that's the way I'm thinking about this. And I think it's a golden opportunity for all of us, right? This is not something that's happening just in one or two months. This is years of hard work that is going to take to make sure that these 1,800 individuals, many of them families, right? We had the largest family of 13 people. 
That's a lot of people, two parents and 11 children. God help those parents, right? <laughs> I, I That's have a lot two of kids. children. Uh -huh. Oh man, I yeah, have, you have two, two children. Uh, yeah. I can't even take it sometimes, you know. <laughs> but these kids are going to grow up. They're going to go through our school system. Yeah. They're going to go to colleges and universities and hope I guarantee you. No, I just say hopefully. I know one day they're going to establish their own families here in Oklahoma. So we have the opportunity to make sure that they feel like they're a part of the fabric of our state, that they feel like they belong so that they will recognize that when I was in need, my fellow Oklahomans helped me. So now that I'm an adult and I'm grown and I'm a successful doctor or lawyer or business owner, I'm going to help other people. And this is what the way we have to think about it. So I see this as an investment for our future. I see this as an investment for the growing diversity of our state and our nation. Diversity does nothing more than beautify what we already have, right? The more diversity you have, the more beautiful things can get. And I'm just thrilled that these people are coming in. They're feeling welcome. They're showing up to prayer services at the mosque. They're starting to get integrated into the society, right? I don't like the term assimilation because to me, you know, I have learned from the author, the author Ibram X. Kendi, assimilation is nothing more than a racist terminology, right? To assimilate is to say that you have to lose parts of your culture to adopt to this more superior culture. They don't need to assimilate. Integrate, sure. We have to teach them how things work. We have to teach them how they get their kids enrolled in school. They have to do English for second language, help them apply for jobs, so on and so forth. But we have to help them hold on to and celebrate their culture and be 100% themselves. Do something that I was not able to do for a lot of my life, which is be their authentic selves and to recognize that they don't need to sacrifice any of that here in Oklahoma. I love all of that so much, Adam. Um, I've never been more proud to be an Oklahoman. And I'm on one side of the family, fourth generation Oklahoman. Mm. And, and we do hear this terminology, the Oklahoma standard. And, and any term that's thrown out these days can become ubiquitous pretty quickly. In other words, <laughs> it's used so often that the meaning goes out of it. But this is uh, infused with the essence of what the Oklahoma standard means, at least to me. Mm. So I mm. join you in that. And just knowing that we love our neighbors, that, that we really care about uh, individuals who in their time of need have needs beyond those of our own that we can help to meet right. and be a better neighbor. Mm -hmm. And Oklahomans uh, know so many things about how to be a great neighbor. And mm -hmm. that's, that's one of the defining characteristics, at least through my eyes, of what it means to be an Oklahoman. I know how to right. be a friend to my neighbor. I know how to provide to those in need uh, because I've experienced mm. need or I've been helped in a like manner by mm. someone from our state or from somewhere else. But we're certainly known for that here. And to know that I love also your comment about integration uh, as opposed to assimilation. Uh, yeah, through my lens, assimilation is outmoded. That that word is, is no longer really usable or useful. It may still be right. Uh, used. But yeah, integration, that's the name of my business, full integration coaching. It really means, <laughs> it means be who you really are and find that person mm. because that person is a gift to the world. You know, that person mm. was created uniquely and, and has a special place and a special purpose or set of purposes in the world. So mm. as I hear you reflect back, I know you caught some of your own narrative, you know, as you're able to give forward. Uh, to the right. refugees that you're meeting with, and, and you have this $5 bill, metaphorically, you know, uh, you have more than, than what you need to take care of, uh, of yourself and your family right. and your community. And so there, there's the opportunity to give it away, because that's what God has really put in your path to do. Mm. Yeah, mm. so um, very, very powerful. Um, I know that your schedule is super tight, my friend. So I want to honor <laughs> your time, but let me let me leave you maybe with one last question. You can choose to answer this one or, or another closing remark. But here's here's a, a closing question, Adam. What gives you hope in the specific times that we're in these days? That's that's a great question. You know, and I'm a very hopeful person. If, if anyone follows me, you know, on social media or knows me, I'm, I'm a hope, 
hopeless optimistic, right? I always try to look at the positive side of things, but you know, I always find something, even when things seem like they're just really difficult, right? I still manage to find things that give me hope. And I can give you just a few examples. One, I mean, you already mentioned it and I've mentioned it, but I have never in my entire life, you know, I'm 38 years old. Uh, the vast majority of my life has been, and the memories that have been collected in my mind are of living in a post 9-11 America as a Muslim, right? So a lot of negativity, a lot of hate, uh, a lot of challenges there. But with this refugee crisis, I've never seen my fellow Oklahomans just come together and not ask questions, right? The last time I saw this was in uh, 2013 with the tornadoes and more because my close friend, his house was destroyed in the tornado. So about 24 hours after that tornado hit, I went down there and I was able to get through the police lines um, with his help and, and help him get some things out of his house. And I remember dozens of people passed by in trucks or on bicycles or whatnot, asking if we needed help, offering water. I mean, there was no questions, right? They didn't care what the color of your skin was, what your religion you were, anything like that. But that was different, right? Because that was a natural disaster and that impacted us here at home. In this case, this is not a natural disaster, right? This is something that we look at as being part the responsibility of our federal government and part just the circumstances of the world. But we know where these people are coming from. We also know that the vast majority of them, if not all of them, are Muslim. But yet we're seeing people come out and not even ask questions. Just, I want to help. I want to help. I want to help. And normally the work we do as an organization is funded majority by Muslims. But in this case, when it comes to refugee support, I think we've gotten more donations, financial donations, monetary donations, as well as things for the, the, to provide the refugees from people who are not Muslim than ever before in the last 15 years we've ever done this. That gives me hope, right? Because the only way I see America working, right, this experiment of religious freedom and freedom of speech and all this kind of stuff is if we learn to get past allowing labels to divide us, right? We've, we've lived through some very divisive times. And I think this shows me that there, we have the potential, right? We have the capability to do that. So this is beautiful and this gives me a lot of hope. The other thing that many, other, that many of the listeners may be able to re relate to is my teaching at Oklahoma State University. So I run a nonprofit, keeps me very busy. Add to that that I teach a few courses at Oklahoma State University and I have to drive from Oklahoma City to Stillwater, right? So why would I do that to myself? Well, I love teaching, number one. But number two, interacting with young people gives me a lot of hope. A lot of my students at Oklahoma State University, vast majority of them are white. They come from Christian backgrounds. But yet the way that they're able to see the world, the perspectives they have, the understanding they have for the need for dialogue across faith, across culture, the understanding they have, I'm teaching a new course this semester called uh, Religion, Race, and Social Justice. The conversations we're having in, this in the classroom are helping me realize that there is a possibility we can move past the idea of race in America, that we can finally realize the dream of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that we can finally see an end to the civil rights movement, right? I tell my students the civil rights movement may have began in the 1950s and 60s, but it's far from over. And we can see that in the headlines and what's going on in the streets with Black Lives Matter and the many other issues we're facing. So yeah, I think the real things that we're doing together as people, regardless of our faith or cultural background, and looking at the young generation, right? Most of these people were born after 9-11. Their worldview was not shaped by the horrific tragedy. They don't view you know, Muslims as this foreign entity, but they view Muslims as their friends, as their neighbors, right? So I think the potential for dialogue, the potential for plurality, uh, the potential for cooperation, and truly engaging with one another as not just friends, but as brothers and sisters in humanity, it's there with this next generation of people. So that gives me a lot of hope. And that's why I keep it on. I keep on working day after day, because I know my life has been, uh, you know, 
a life of struggle and still continues to be at times. But I just have hope that the next generation is going to take this in the right direction and that my kids will one day be able to enjoy the fruits of my labor. I, I don't want them to have to do what I do now. I want them to be able to enjoy a life that I never quite had for myself because of the struggles I went through. So that keeps me going. That keeps me waking up and getting out of bed every morning and just moving everything in the right direction, we hope. Yeah, that's incredibly inspiring. Thanks for that word there, Adam. And uh, really, for all of the deep sharing that you've done during during our conversation today, I know that it's benefited me. And, and I'm going to reflect back after our conversation's over. And every time we meet, I have something new to think about. And uh, it's usually something really positive. So mm. I'm really grateful to know you. And uh, last time, Adam Sultani, thanks for being my guest on the show. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure to be here and to have this opportunity to share some of my life story with the audience. Thank you and God bless. God bless. You've been listening to the Live Your Purpose podcast. I hope you've been inspired by my conversation with today's guest. If you like what you hear, please share with your social networks and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Charles Gossett, Life Purpose Coach and founder of Full Integration Coaching. To learn more about the life coaching, public speaking, and retreat services that I offer, visit fullintegrationcoaching.com. And you can follow along with me on Facebook and Instagram at Full Integration Coaching. Until next time, remember, You were meant to live on purpose. Start living yours today.